0: Segue on to, to film a bit. I'm always Runee Mara's um, kind of portrayal of Mary Magdalene always stands out in my mind um, because she is an incredibly pale white woman um, who, in terms of representations of Mary Magdalene, perhaps. Was the, the perhaps the least sexual that I've seen? Um, she was frequently covered up. Um, if anyone's seen the film, um, the film is beautiful in other ways, like the, the cinematography. The kind of there, there's so much to admire about the film. But what uh, the film is called Mary Magdalene? Um, I should have said it's just, it's just Mary Magdalene. Uh, Rooney Mara um, back in Phoenix 2017, 2018 um, is the dates that I'm going to shoot for, but I don't think it's, it's around that time. Um, and what really struck me about it is that this kind of image of Mary Magdalene is inseparable from the fact that Rooney Mara is so, so white. <laughs> and um, I was, fortunate enough to go to a kind of film screening of it and there was a Q&A with um, I think it was casting directors afterwards um, and a question was brought up um, about well tr- there, there was a lot of emphasis in trying to tell the story of a first century Palestinian woman um, and what she might have experienced as part of this group as, as the only kind of woman um, of name in Jesus's following um, and the question was brought up that well you're trying to tell a woman's experience, but you're taking a significant portion of that experience away by the fact that you are erasing her kind of racial identity and the fact that she wasn't a white woman in this context. And I yeah, just kind of the conversation just having about this, this um orient- orientalist attitude um really almost brought out in, in striking notion what's being portrayed in this film actually is this we see Mary Magdalene in contrast, perhaps the other artistic depictions of a covered body, um, someone who in the, in the um, picture has her head veiled, um, is seen practicing kind of a good, in inverted quotes, um, good religious practice. Um, but she's also a white woman. She's not a first century Palestinian woman or um, anything kind of resembling a Palestinian woman would be. So how those kind of dynamics are still being played out today is really just that conversation really brought that out.
1: So um, it's an interesting question and I'd like to start by picking up on a few terms that you use. Um, So you a few times referred to Mary Magdalene as a first century Palestinian woman and I want to just make a note about using Palestinian here. And I know that it's a not uncommon thing to do, but I think it's important to say that no Jewish person in first century Galilee or Judea referred to themselves as Palestinian. And this was a name that was given to the land by the Romans after the failed second revolt in 135 CE and the expulsion of a lot of the Jewish population and it was given to the land as an intentional humiliation. Um, so I think it's important that we don't use Palestinian as a descriptor for, um, for the people in the New Testament narrative. And I know we'll find a little bit of argument back and forth on that in the academic community, but that is, I feel pretty firm on that. And I would add to that also Middle Eastern. We'll often have these people described as Middle Eastern. Middle Eastern is a modern geopolitical designation that really doesn't make sense in the first century world, particularly because this area was part of the Greco-Roman world. Yes, it was on the Eastern end of the Greco-Roman world, but there was no Middle East at that time. So I think that both kind of insert um, modern ideas into the way that we're talking about the New Testament period. And there was another comment where you said um, that because Rooney Mara is a white woman, that it's erasing Mary Magdalene's racial identity. Now there was no racial identity in the first century. There was ethnicity, but there, nobody spoke in terms of race. Again, there were putting modern ideas into that context. So I would say the thing that we need to be talking about when we're talking about these people, when we talk about New Testament characters being Jewish, we are talking about ethnicity, uh, not about race. And race does matter, but it matters because of representation and the way that representation plays in the modern world where people do think in racial terms. So when we cast Jesus or um, other holy figures as white and Western, it's not just erasing the ethnicity of these historical figures, but it's making a modern racial statement because that is how people today will receive that casting. They'll they'll see the race the same way that you, seen the race there. Um, So I would say with Mary Magdalene as a film, I'd like to put Rooney Mara aside for a minute and talk about the casting of everybody else. So in general, the casting for this film was really, really good. When you look at the actors who are cast to play the disciples, you have a wonderful mix of ethnicities going on. Um, the actor who played Peter is black British. Um, the actor who played Judas is French Algerian. I have to say I looked this up. Um, I don't know all this on the off the top of my head, but um, I had a feeling it would come up. So I did a little background dig on a few stats. Um, so the actor who played James is Palestinian. A number of the actors, including the um, actress who played the Virgin Mary or Israeli. We have a few actors who are Sephardi Jewish um, of Moroccan or Turkish background, some who are Iraqi Jewish. So that would be in the sort of broader Mizrahi group. Um, And Joaquin Phoenix himself is of Ashkenazi descent. So he's not Jewish, but his mother was Born and uh, raised Jewish until I think he was raised in sort of like a Christian group. Um, but the fact that he is of Ashkenazi descent is incredibly important in the casting of Jesus. Um, so IMDb used to let you do a search on the website where you could search by character and they stopped that function after about 2012 but I bookmarked that page for Jesus so that I could have that list forever and um would you like to have a guess at the number of times Jesus has been portrayed on screen
2: across film and tv
1: across film and tv up until 2012 so we might have a few more since then but yeah
2: Let's go for a nice round, 100.
1: So there are 350 <laughs> entries for, um, okay. for actors playing Jesus. And I, I did make sure to go through and remove any where the character is actually somebody named Jesus. Um, so we are looking specifically at Jesus Christ as a character portrayed on screen, 350. Of those, would you like to guess how many times it has been a Jewish performer?
2: I feel by the framing of the question, it's going to be pretty low. Let's go for a nice, let's say a dozen, you know, in the theme of the disciples.
1: So it is four. Four. Um, There was a documentary made in 1979 called In Search of the Historic Jesus, um, where an actor played Jesus in probably in a reenactment section of that documentary and that actor um, had a Jewish father. There's an episode of a few episodes of South Park where Jesus Christ pops in as a character and it's Matt Stone, who is um, his mother is Jewish. And he voices Jesus in those scenes. And then two films. One is a 2017 film called The Shack. Um, And Jesus in that film is played by an Israeli actor of Sephardi and Mizrahi background, and then it's Joaquin Phoenix. So we've got In
2: Search of, a bit of a strange documentary series. We've got South Park. We've got The Shack, which I'm assuming Mm -hmm. is based on that really popular Christian novel. Um,
1: Yeah, so it's set in the contemporary world. Right. Okay. Um, and I think it's a father or a mother and father together couple who encounter um, Jesus in a shack. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen the movie. I read a description about it. Um, I had read about it when it came out. So yes, yeah, so he like appears. Mm-hmm. So this is not set in the biblical and, world. and
2: then Jesus in context in like a serious drama is this Mary Magdalene film. So we're kind of in search of, and then one serious dramatic portrayal. Wow, that is uh, not great statistics, let's say.
1: No, it's really not great. But I think what noting these statistics does, and what Kat's question does, is prompt us to ask, what do we want to see in the casting of these characters? And if the thing that we want to see is historical accuracy, well, I'm really afraid that that thing is just not going to happen. We can't go back to the first century. We can't pluck somebody out of that context, line them up to somebody today and say, that's it. We've gotten something historically accurate. Ultimately, we don't know what these people look like. We can take some educated guesses, but those educated guesses are really limited by what's available to us. So I think a much better question to be asking is how do we seek to correct historic harm that's been done by representation of the New Testament narrative and the sacred figures within that narrative? And when we think about the group that's most been harmed by that representation, that group that we are thinking of, that's the same group that connects directly to the New Testament figures themselves, and that, that group, are Jews, um, who for over a millennia in the European continent, at the very least, suffered an enormous amount of harm based, in part, on how the New Testament narrative was represented. And that harm included expulsion, um, it included uh, violations of you know, basic liberties and freedoms, restricting what occupations they could hold, restricting what, whether they could have land, um, where they could live, who they could marry or consort with. And of course, many, many, many times over, that harm was violence and murder. Um, So I think having a conversation where we talk about casting Jewish actors to play New Testament characters is a conversation that should be had it could potentially be a really important corrective to some of this historic harm and a really good way of representing the ethnic identity of the New Testament characters themselves but if we continue to do everything else as we've been doing it if we continue to costume everybody in a fully Jewish caste As we have been costuming New Testament dramas, if we continue to keep the set designs, the uh, locations, the score, everything else the same, we are still going to continue to do an awful lot of harm in that representation. We are still going to perpetuate problematic ideas, and we are still going to perpetuate latent anti-Semitism. We also then need to consider how Jews are received today, and as I've already mentioned, for a lot of Jews, they are received as white. So if the Jewish identity of the actors on screen is not known to an audience, the audience might simply perceive those people as white, as was the case in some of the reviews of the Mary Magdalene film, um, and then find problems there in that representation. The other historic harm that we need to consider is the historic harm of white Christian supremacy, um, which goes beyond antisemitism, and um, and has done an awful lot of harm. The enslavement of group of large groups of people, predominantly Black Africans, but also Native Americans and other indigenous peoples, um, the wholesale slaughter of non-white peoples, the restriction, again, of their civil li- civil liberties. So a way to correct that would be to think about um, race in casting. And say we have a project where we get the casting really, really good in terms of representing racial groups that have been historically harmed by white Christian supremacy. If we continue to do everything else the same, to costume everybody the same, to have the same sets, the same locations, the same score, again, we are continuing to perpetuate really problematic things, including linked anti Semitism and Orientalism. And this, so in either case, either caste, either an entirely Jewish caste, which could be racially diverse, or a caste that has focused primarily on racial diversity, um, we still have a lot of other things that we need to be considering in terms of correcting those historic harms. So I hope that what I'm getting across is that this is super complicated, and there is no easy no one solution that will address all of these issues. Overall, I thought Mary Magdalene as a film was really good in some places. I wish I had gotten more credit for the casting apart from the casting of Mary Mary Magdalene herself. Um, But I also think it was still problematic in, in a lot of its representation of Judaism in the first century, particularly with blood imagery. Not great there.
2: Really a thought-provoking answer, I think, that these choices around screen depictions, there's so much more than just kind of one thing going on. Like there's one kind of element that somehow is authentic, um, let's say, in a casting choice. But then I guess this leads on somewhat to... Uh, maybe clothing casting choices and what is deemed authentic then Mm -hmm. so
1: yeah I think a big part of um, of what we're portraying on screen is beyond the actor themselves but how they're costumed how they're costumed relationally to other costumes on screen uh, to other characters on screen Um, there's so much more going on beyond casting, casting is one thing in a plethora of things. And in terms of casting, we're never gonna get this na- accuracy, is out- that's not possible. Um, you're never gonna get accuracy in any element of anything that you see on screen. We can touch on things in an accurate sort of way, but narrative purposes, um, getting a good suspension of disbelief so that you're you know, engaging the audience, like this stuff is always coming first. And then there's just the question of whether we can ever recreate anything from the past in an accurate way. But accuracy, no, we don't achieve that in film. Authenticity is a different sort of question. But again, we're not gonna get an authentic first century Jewish person in casting. So you need to think about, you need to be thinking about representation in a different sort of way. You need to be thinking about the history of representation of these figures and who's been hard done by in the way that we've represented these people. Um, And that representation is more than who's cast it's very much the costume dialogue cinematography it's the whole thing and how it all works all together
0: what's really struck out for me from this kind of discussion is how much the kind of the kind of physical attributes of of casting and person is is almost is is one thing and how the kind of overlays of, of costume of dress of clothing and setting and context all into play and and signify to the audience of who this character is and how the body is such a key part in in creating and signaling to the audience what this character is what this character should be how we should think about this character what we should be like getting from this character whether that's Um, This is a person that we should follow. This is the person who we should root for. And what your kind of comments there and a much needed nuance, I think, has really communicated is is this idea that it's all interwoven, that we can't hyper focus. I think there is, I think you're right, this kind of hyper focus on, on one aspect of someone's identity when dress as part of religious dress was equally as important to who that character was, um, and how they live in um, a world. So when we portray in that world, actually both of those aspects need to be represented. And that was, yeah, I just absolutely in such a kind of clear focus in, in what you, <laughs> in your kind of communication, I've run off, off a bit of a ramble. Um, and Mary Beth is kind of a, a recent example, I suppose. It was, it's the the one film I always think of with kind of a, a woman at the front because most of the biblical films that i know are Patrick. they center
1: men yeah yeah
0: passion of christ even um uh life of brian i don't actually remember Mary imagine in life of brian
1: so life of brian has the character judith and, okay um
2: let's talk Life
0: of brian. <laughs> <laughs> we were waiting for it to happen <laughs>
1: um (laughs) before I jump into life Brian I want to make one more comment about Mary Magdalene and then let's put that to bed so what I really wanted to see in that film was good Jews and it fell into the same trap that every Jesus film always falls into which is that the only good Jews you see are the ones that are Christian that was the I just want to see some good Jews (laughs) Who are not Christian. Um, yeah. So Life of Brian has Judith and I think Judith is the closest that you get to a kind of Mary Magdalene figure because she is the focus of Brian's attention. He's really into Judith. He thinks she's really sexy and he wants to get it on with her. Um, but she is not a sex worker. <laughs> Um, one of the things I think is amazing, the costume designer for Life Brian, Hazel Pethig, um, that she did is she, she does group dress, which you see in most Jesus films, but the group dress in Brian maps onto the character's chosen identity groups. So... The People's Front of Judea, they all dress in black because they're like a rebel outsider counterculture group that they have chosen to become part of. So them having a group dress makes a lot of sense, especially when you think about it in a 1970s sort of way. Mm. Brian joins the People's Front of Judea mostly because he has the hots for Judith. And he never <laughs> adopts the black dress that the rest of the group has. And that's a really clever way of signaling that his heart is just not in it in terms of the political revolution side of that group. Otherwise, we would, if he was really committed to their whole thing, we would see him put on some black clothing and he doesn't. So Judith is interesting in that because it plays a little bit on the, uh, you know, Jesus and Mary Magdalene had a romance thing.
0: I'm gonna have um, the song at the end stuck in the head for the rest of the night, because that was immediately what came to mind when we said, let's talk about life of Brian. So there's no kind of obvious Mary Magdalene in the film, I, it's been a long time since I watched it. It was a second year module that I was made to do on the historical Jesus, um, and we talked a lot about kind of life of Brian as part of that. One of our assessments also was to, to look at Jesus in a in a film and kind of assess that character versus um, the Synoptic Gospels. It sounds quite uh, quite similar in a way to what you had to do, Katie, but. Life of Brian, is it any way, shape or form kind of representative of Jewish clothing and dress in the first century? Or is it a kind of wacky parody? And does it just kind of take the piss a bit of it?
1: So they get a lot wrong. <laughs> um, <laughs> they do, everybody gets a lot wrong. Nobody gets it right. Um, but there are some really, really lovely details that uh, exist in that movie that don't exist elsewhere. So one of those is, um, the fact that when Brian is in the Coliseum and he's selling snacks, (laughs) just, just love it so much. Like, it just makes me so want to go full New York and have him say, like, get your hot dog here. Hot dogs. (laughs) (laughs) It's so good. Anyway, he's wearing a potassos, which is a Greek sun hat um, that's most associated with uh, Hermes. No? Um, And that's referenced in... Uh, 2nd Maccabees. The author of 2nd Maccabees is really anti-Hellenism that's going on and he's angry. I mean he writes it in Greek so he's not too anti-Hellenism but he's anti, you know, there's some anger there towards Hellenism. And he bemoans the building of the Colosseum and the wearing of the Potassos in the Colosseum. Apparently, I learned today on Twitter that Dr. Sarah Parks thinks that it might not actually be a potassos and actually be a cheeky reference to a sort of reverse circumcision procedure, but leaving that aside, we do have this reference to Jews wearing, Hellenized Jews wearing potassos in the Colosseum. So the fact that Hazel Pethig gets into life of Brian has a scene where they are sat in a coliseum and she puts Brian in a potassos is amazing. Um, so she deserves a lot, of, a lot of credit for that one. I've not seen anything so immediately referential to an actual biblical text as that in any other Jesus film. Another point is in the Sermon on the Mount scene, when you get... The camera pulls back and you have the crowd and they are uh wondering what he said blessed are the cheesemakers um (laughs) that that crowd (laughs) you know any purveyor of dairy product is really who he's blessing um (laughs) that crowd has another number of really great details. So there is a very wealthy couple and you can tell because I have a very very posh accent and the wife of that couple is perfectly costumed. She's got the right jewelry, she's got the right ketone on, she her hair is up, it's perfect. And she is not Greek She is Jewish. And the wealthy couple, they have a little enslaved boy with them holding a parasol over their heads. Mm. And that detail, too, where do we see slavery in films about Jesus? Never. It is not there. Mm. So the fact that there's this little... That little detail, I think um, it was really important. The The child is a black child, and that plays a, a little bit um, in a sort of modern understanding of slavery, because we have an ostensibly white couple with a little black slave. Um but though, whereas, like, in antiquity, slavery didn't break down on those sorts of racial lines. But, and this is one of those places where we need to think about the audience for the film, having it break down in those racial lines on screen makes it much more clear to audiences what the dynamic is without having to say it. So it is important for that, for communicating what's going on. So those little details um, in Brian were great. Pontius Pilate, when he uh, is presiding over crucifixion decisions, he's in a toga, which he should be. He is not in military vestments. Vestments? Armor? Military armor? Um, garb
0: is always the term that I end up with because I'm like, I don't know how to describe this. So, garb.
1: Military garb.
2: Comes out garbled. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, that's like the most common way that we get Pilot in most contemporary films. So, Mel Gibson did that. He puts him in military garb. Killing Jesus puts him in military garb. Um, The Bible miniseries, military, everybody loves Pilate and military. But according to the laws of Rome at the time, if you were performing any civic function as a representative of Rome, you were required to wear the toga. So the fact that Pilate is wearing a toga in Life of Brian is correct. So there's these little details in Brian that even though overall we have a lot of the sort of very Bedouin-esque aesthetic that characterizes Jesus films, they got a lot of this stuff, these little details, really good. Very clever.
2: So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about the fake beards as well.
1: I don't know. I don't know what to do with the fake beards. So, I mean, I think that really speaks to sort of British pantomime, really.
2: Yeah. And uh, the Python's whole, like, regular characters of them dressing up as women. Yep. But then the dressing up as women, dressing up as men, like, it's just, yeah, an extra added twist on their go-to joke.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of very good layers there. Um, And I appreciated the use of black in... Instead of having black being attached to any priest or Pharisee group, we're having it being attached to the countercultural group, the revolutionary group, um which feels much more appropriate for that color. So,
0: yeah. I mean, this this brings me into my attempt to kind of grasping opinions and, and your thoughts on other films because I'm probably going to be sorely disappointed if you haven't seen the film please just let me know I've got a list that I made because <laughs>
1: okay.
0: I am
2: keen <laughs> to hear your opinions Passion of the Christ how accurate in terms of costuming? Oh, one second! Before we begin this game, do we want to set some parameters on the answers? <laughs> so, like, you you cannot take more than thirty seconds. Yeah,
0: I want gut instinct.
1: Okay. So, are we are we talking just accuracy or like two categories: accuracy and then also problematic?
2: <laughs> well, I, Let's do a bad score for both. badness. Score out five. For both. <laughs> yeah. So a Good five guy. for accuracy, five being very accurate, one being not accurate at all, and then a score at five for um, direness, <laughs> well, five. This is dreadful. This is like harmful, and one as being no. This is actually maybe quite positive. Okay.
1: Sure. Yeah. Let's go for it.
2: Okay. Let's let's see how this works. Like springing. Oh, this is. Like <laughs> if in doubt i'll take gut
0: reactions because (laughs) the passion of the christ okay
1: so one is least accurate right
0: yeah
1: okay one for accuracy and one for direness
0: okay exodus gods and kings
1: i didn't see it
0: Okay, we can skip that one. I was um, really I was um, really
1: put off by the casting and the reviews, and I was like, I'm not going to see that.
0: <laughs> I, would, I would be inclined to agree with you there. Okay. You missed, or you haven't, like, nearly two hours of your life that you didn't spend, so... Okay. The, ten, the Ten Commandments, Cecil B. DeMille.
1: Cecil B. DeMille's Ten, ten Commandments. Okay. Um, accuracy, I would put it at... Uh, two and a half. The Egyptian character is not so bad but he very much falls into the Moses as Christ sort of trope, lots of Bedouin stuff going on there,
0: Um, yeah. Also just as well we're on the Ten Commandments, I would be remiss if I didn't encourage everyone as we come up to kind of pass over time to go and watch the incredible um, Hello Just Adele's hello Justin Bieber mashup on the Passover story if no one's seen that but it's got yes, the kind of very good, Ten very, very good. it's so <laughs> spectacular it's the the best bit of cinema actually coming out of that film um Noah
1: Noah I okay first of all absolutely no way to know accuracy wise no. giant question mark <laughs> <laughs> like is it biblical could... They could have gone Sumerian, and that would have been so fascinating. I would have loved to see that. Such interesting costumes could have happened there, um, but they didn't. Um, Noah was excellent. Excellent movie. Love that movie. Um, really Jewish. Probably the most Jewish biblical movie that's been made. That's particularly one that's mainstream. Um, So it needs major props for that costume design in terms of messaging and what it's, what it's sending out. I would say it's like a four. It's just the the movie's just well done for what it's trying to communicate. I mean, accuracy, you know, I just can't rate it. (laughs)
0: did the flood happen that yeah a question for another episode but um, seriously
1: if anyone wants to do another Noah movie um Sumerian go Sumerian
0: I would love to see that actually I would love to see more kind of ancient like why has nobody done a film in a new release I why do we have about 50 gladiator films or like I don't actually know that's probably made that up but every film I seem to see about the, the ancient world is kind of Roman coliseum vibes. And mm. it really should just sitting in there mind its own business, which would be an epic kind of fantasy movie. There are so
1: many, so many stories, so many people and cultures that we could centre and we don't. And actually that's one knock against Noah is the casting. Like, okay, you know, mainstream Hollywood casting, but it could have been much more diverse much more interesting in terms of casting so I would knock that even though I'm not rating the costuming on accuracy if I was I would knock it down a point or two because of casting
0: fair enough I'm also just going to say if anyone's listening that is interested in developing films Gilgamesh would also be one that I'd be really interested in seeing particularly yes. as a tv series um because I feel like it'd be a really good series. uh Jesus Christ Superstar Oh, oh. and you can have film and you, can... <laughs> you can have film on stage <laughs> maybe this is just the one to be like let's move on um, okay
1: so I will rate the film and that I would put the I mean accuracy no um, <laughs> there's no <laughs> there's no accuracy there Um, in terms of what it's communicating that one's like a two it's not good um I went and saw the stage production that had, um, um, what's her name? The Spice Girl.
0: Oh, um, uh, the uh, Emma Bunton.
1: No. Jerry no. Halliwell. I'll
0: just start listening Spice Girls.
1: No. <laughs> sporty, sporty, sporty. Mel C. Mel C. Um, she was Mary Magdalene and, uh, Tim mention was Judas. So good. Um, That they costumed, it was all costumed like um, Occupy Wall Street protesters, very counterculture, played that whole thing. That in terms of obviously accuracy, again, is like that's not relevant there. But um, in terms of what the costumes were communicating, they did better than the film. So I would put that more at like a three and a half. The problem with the film, I just need to pause on this for a second. First of all, Jesus gets one long white tunic. So Jesus is costumed like Jesus and everybody else is costumed like a 1970s hippie. Okay, fine. Um, we are clearly getting... Textual analysis here, they're saying we should be reading and understanding Jesus and his movement as a counter-cultural movement akin to the anti-war, peace, love, and, you know, hippie movement of the 70s. We can... that's a separate discussion. The priests in... um. Jesus Christ, superstar, are costumed all in black. They wear enormous hats. Caiaphas still has the gold breastplate on his chest, even as the rest of him is basically bare-chested. So we know exactly what's being pointed to there in his costuming. The hats, which are massive, are also very clearly inspired by Turkish turbans from the 16th and 17th century, you can see the swirl in them. So we've still got the Orientalism going on. The black vilifies them, and then they spend most of the film on scaffolding, which makes them look like crows looking down on Jesus and his happy, peace-loving disciples underneath. So there's a lot of troubling stuff there. And then when we get to Herod, we've got a lot more Orientalism at play with Herod. So um, contemporaneously costumed, still super problematic.
0: So I will, I have two more that I'm kind of dying to know your opinion on. Prince of Egypt is next with the preface that it's one of my favorite films. So I'm gonna take any (laughs) negative comment personally here. Um, But Prince of Egypt, Dreamworks, Animation.
1: Yeah, so Egyptian clothing is not my thing. But there is still Bedouin stuff going on in the illustration because we just can't divorce ourselves from that. (laughs) It's got to be everywhere, Um, which probably bears no relationship to how Egyptian people actually dressed. it does such a much better job in so many other places though. So if you're gonna watch something, watch that one.
0: Yeah. I let my I good let my kid job.
1: watch that one. So if that's like an indication
0: <laughs> you know it's your approval. And the, the yeah. last two I have are the Esther films that really are disgusting. Um I've got one night with a king with um what's his face from Lawrence of Arabia Peter Tool? and then there's Esther and the king which is the is it Joan Collins not Joan Collins
1: so I know that there's been another Esther movie also that's been made by like an American Christian um, film production I haven't seen any of them I, I just take your time You know, sometimes you just get to a point where you're like, I can't stomach it. (laughs) So I'm just not going to go there. It'll probably happen eventually um, if I choose to go into a a different text and time period. But
0: Esther's all there and waiting. It has got some of the worst film adaptations that I think I've seen, Um, except for the Israeli satire, The Jews Are Coming, which has one of the best kind of... (coughs) <laughs> excuse me on the best like scenes with um all kind of film portrayals of esther because it doesn't portray esther's sexual trafficking as a love story um right. and so if you're gonna watch anything of esther watch that one but yeah uh they are all bad save your time I just wanted to be seen no is, is your film quiz over but yeah, I love that. Well, I've,
2: learned, <laughs> I've learned two things from that. One is that I shouldn't make up some arbitrary rules for a list that I haven't, like, Kat <laughs> is going to ask um, whether any of the the rankings make any sense <laughs> um, and the other is that cat um, is definitely like a Hebrew Bible scholar because most of those were not Jesus No, <laughs> yeah
0: you, you might notice that I haven't really seen apart from life of Brian and there's one with I think it's Eddie Murphy um but doing the historical Jesus module in my second year of undergraduate we're looking at kind of is it the the walking rabbi or the kind of traveling, rabbi theme oh,
1: the wandering jew trope
0: that's it yeah, yeah the, um that trope and there's film thing with eddie murphy and the plays on that and we watch that as part of historical jesus that's kind of the only jesus films i've seen and yes yeah, it's, it's the, the hebrew bible
1: so i would say in general jesus films are not good they're not very entertaining um The reason I say that, though, is because it is really hard to make an entertaining movie out of a story that has no character development, that doesn't have any real tension. When you are depicting God on screen, um, God is perfect, and perfect is dull in terms of film. Um, Perfect might be not dull at all in terms of religious faith and personal belief, but in terms of making a good film narrative, it doesn't make the best film narrative. It's not the most interesting film-going experience. Um, But that said, The Last Temptation of Christ is really interesting because that one really delves into the idea of Jesus being both fully man and fully God and the tension in that. And that tension's interesting. So there's a lot of rich stuff going on in The Last Temptation. It's funny because that film was just hugely boycotted and people thought it was so blasphemous and really awful. And actually, it's so much Truer to Christian faith that you have a fully man and fully divine Jesus. Um, that said, there is so much Orientalism in that movie, but there's some interesting costume stuff going on in that movie too. They're doing things that you don't usually see because they're actually exploring Jesus's character. His costume changes as his character develops, and that is something we don't see in any other Jesus film. So. Yeah. So some some points for Last Temptation. Um, Risen. You- Risen is a recent one. I don't know if you, either of you have seen Risen.
0: I came across the trailer for it when yeah. I was watching um, the Asta films because that amazing. movie is
1: ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's not good. It's uh, it's worth a watch in terms of like how silly it is because it is very much like. Let's do CSI, but let's do CSI <laughs> in the New Testament.
0: Oh, I love and
1: that. <laughs> won't that be interesting?
0: <laughs> that's, that's enough to sell me on it. Crime, <laughs> drama and Bible. I'm there. i sold.
2: So here's a pitch. Um, um, we can completely leave this out, but I'm tempted to see if we could get something together, which is almost like a Ancient Afterlives does film reviews and we just get Katie to come and tell us about like films she's seen yeah and they're, they're like a 10 minute episode so it doesn't have to be very long so would you make of this one because your thoughts on these are amazing and we like, it's just so interesting to listen to because it
0: would be remiss of me not to mention this given that also we just talked about the kind of orientalism and kind of <laughs> islamic traditions june oh we good? like does anyone care about I june?
1: so i i never read it Um, I know it was a really big thing, but I feel like, I feel like most of the British people I know have a relationship with the book and the American people I know do not. I don't know if there's like a cultural difference going on there or something, but anyway, it passed me by. I never read it as a kid, haven't read it as an adult, and, um, I, a couple years ago, I bought Aladdin for my niece. She was turning 10 and she hadn't seen Aladdin and I thought I'll buy her Aladdin. And um, it was, no, it might have been for Christmas, doesn't matter. But we, we put it on to watch together and I hadn't seen it in years and I love, I love Aladdin. And I was like, oh my god, this movie is... Really bad, like yeah, super, super offensive, so offensive. Oh my god, I just could not like. Yeah, I, mean, I like <laughs> I I could not like I I knew some of it, you know. Like mm-hmm. I could think back on Aladdin and think, yeah. Like as I was learning more and more about Orientalism and Orientalism and film, I I not like it took me completely by surprise, but how bad it was really and I thought this has ruined Aladdin for me I can't sit and watch this movie um I know too much so I think that put me off <laughs> because I didn't have a relationship to the book for Dune and I had seen things about Orientalism and Dune I just thought I don't know that it's worth my time because I might just be too angry too quickly to develop any relationship with the movie. You know, sometimes you just can't put something out of your mind, um, which isn't entirely fair, like suspension of disbelief and allow for creative interpretation, okay, blah blah blah, but sometimes things are just too close.
0: Well, I'm going to, as the, the June hype fan, with the acknowledgement that it is, yeah, super orientalistic, that's not the word, orientalist. Um, but there is so much layered religious imagery and a blending of probably, I don't know, the extent to which is intentional, but the film captures this kind of religious atmosphere and this kind of messianic atmosphere in a way that I've not seen it elsewhere and I actually I have a list on my phone which I've definitely just got up um about all the kind of cross-references of like biblical stuff and in June I noticed in the film that the kind of there's this idea like the kind of general messianic imagery a lot of soteriology um particularly with um Leto and his kind of when he's faced in in terms of empire he becomes a savior figure you have this kind of wandering in the desert um, imagery along with the colonization that really fits in this promised land. You have the poor Jesus dynamic. Um sorry, I should say the Charney Paul and the Judas Jesus dynamic. I've written Paul Jesus, but I knew what I meant there. Um and the just kind of really interesting shifting discussion between kind of imperialism and religion and anti-imperialist rhetoric and how and just this kind of blurring of worlds that I feel is really worth watching as a biblical scholar because it's that kind of layered traditions that was wild to me and also I just really want to talk about it so
1: (laughs) okay I'll watch it
2: you just need to watch it okay so as a sci-fi nerd yeah this is I'm gonna cut all this out but I really enjoyed June and I've read so I watched the latest film then I watched the 80s one and then I read the first mm. 3 books so like I've come backwards to it but I quite like it. Yes. Um, I
0: yeah. I as a sci-fi nerd sorry. I mean I do really I do
1: good. love sci-fi it's not like you know, and there's a lot of Orientalism in sci-fi as it is. Um, so much. So.
0: Uh, if you want to read the worst sci-fi about the biblical world, um, look no further than Michael Mordock's Behold the Man, where he becomes Jesus. Um, I suppose most of the time masturbating. So yes. that's also really great. Right. Male writers in the 70s writing sci-fi is just kind of the worst <laughs> thing when they then beca- decide that they become the like Jesus on the mess messianic figure it just gets even worse um so I'm
2: gonna try and get us back on track yeah sorry <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> <Kiss that. laughs> please enjoy the worst sci-fi I had to read it you can now know about it because every time I speak to someone about it they're like oh yeah I quite like that and I'm like we just operating on different levels here because <laughs> I really didn't enjoy that book Anyway, back to films. You should definitely watch (laughs) Dune.
2: It's not back on track! (laughs) Absolutely Um. So I thought um, kind of tying a lot of this all back together um, and to return to um a bit of the ancient materials i kind of wanted maybe a bit of a picky question for you sure. but um i thought it might be quite interesting um that i know very little about ancient clothing um do you have a particular artifact or particular type of clothing which is kind of something that you wish more people would know about or is just your kind of favorite most interesting thing
1: that's a good question um One of my very, very favorite artifacts is a fragment, a textile fragment that was found at Masada that is almost like a houndstooth pattern, and it traveled there from the UK. So some Roman soldier had been somewhere in Britain and had taken this all the way to Masada um, and deposited it there sometime between one of the revolts. So um, it doesn't tell us much except distances of journeys taken. But I just think it's so cool. I just think it's so far. It's so far. And like, you know, you can read about the fact that they went that far people did travel those great distances, but seeing evidence of it and seeing something that look it looks so British. Like you look at this textile and it just you can see the UK <laughs> in this textile. Okay. Um yeah, I love that that artifact. I love that.
0: And you're right, so British.
2: It reminds me, there's uh, hasmonean coins have been found along the Rhine. Yeah. I think were deposited there in antiquity. So, yeah, the ancient world is one great movement of people.
1: Yeah, it's just cool. It's just really cool when you see evidence of it.
2: I, I didn't also just...
0: Uh, patterns. <laughs> patterns. The Why are we just being showed kind of beige when we're shown the ancient world?
1: So. I don't, the beige thing is interesting. I think that there's a belief that there's a historicity to beige. I've listened to some interviews with costume designers who talk about, I, inter, I actually interviewed uh, a costume designer for, not for a film, um, for the Trafalgar Square Passion. So the Passion of Trafalgar Square is put on every year in Trafalgar Square on Good Friday. Um, They do two performances, one midday and one later afternoon. Um, It is run by the Wintershall Trust. They've been doing it since 2010, I think, but don't quote me on that. Um, They took 2020 off because of COVID. Um, So it is a sort of a small community production that's been scaled up really big. Um, It's got loads of problems in it, but if you're ever near Trafalgar Square on Easter weekend, I do recommend checking it out. It's a very interesting experience. It's free, so you can just go there and watch it. Um, One of the things that the costume designer for that kept saying to me she said, well, they, you know, they would have worn any old thing, wouldn't they? They would have worn any old thing. They didn't have any money. And it just betrays so little understanding of people from the past and what it means to have been from a different time period. Um, and I think a lot of that is going on in the beige, the fact that a lot of it looks like sackcloth. It's very frayed. It's often dirty. I think there's an attempt at verisimilitude in that. While they were poor, they couldn't have afforded dyes. But there's also something going on, something being transmitted from early medieval portrayals of Jesus. So Jesus gets, unless we see Jesus resplendent in heaven, when he is enthroned in heaven, he wears... Um, luxurious textiles. When he is on earth, he appears differently. So that distinction matters. So when I say what Jesus does or does not appear like, I am not referring to images of Jesus in heaven. So Jesus on earth is depicted mostly in a long sleeved, wide sleeve, long tunic, pretty shapeless, sometimes built it at the waist, sometimes not, always barefoot. And his tunic used to be, in earlier medieval art, dark browns and grays, those sorts of colors. And they progressively became lighter, such that by the 19th century, it's much more common to see him in white, and that's how we see him today. But now, film directors, in an attempt to make it more accurate, They pull that white down to a dirty beige color. But this shape of Jesus' clothing, the depiction of Jesus that we have, is so immediately tied to theological ideas about Christ and what Christ was on earth versus what Christ is in heaven, which is why he's depicted differently in heaven. if you'll notice, so you look closely at Jesus' clothing, and then if you look at medieval depictions of monks or friars, famously cloistered individuals, their clothing is remarkably similar. So there's a real link going on there mm. between how they understood a humble appearance. Um. So we're just seeing the legacy of that in the way that we see people depicted in film today in film costume. The sleeved tunic, those wide sort of just a rectangle sleeve stuck on, that is not a feature of first century Greco-Roman clothing. They did not make separate sleeves and put them on tunics. That comes later. the tunics at the time would just have been made wide enough so that when you belted them, they gave the appearance of sleeves. But there were no separate cut, sewn-on sleeves. It's not part of garment manufacture. Um. So yeah, I like. I think beige is just this idea of what is what's poor, what's humble, what is easy. But actually, poorer populations tried to emulate what their betters were doing, as is still the case today. We have not changed much. Um, We really like to, you know, to try and dress according to trends, no matter your income level. Um, And so you do get dyed textiles that, are a poor quality textile or a clearly reused textile. And you can tell that the dye, I mean, I can't because I don't do this kind of analysis, but people who really know what they're doing and do chemical analysis and look at the textile up close can tell when a dye was a cheap dye versus an expensive dye. And it has to do with how well the fiber absorbed the dye, how color fast the dye was. So when you washed your garment, um, would you be washing the dye out? That would be a cheaper dye. Something that really absorbs into the material that's a more and has a longer color life. That's a more expensive dye. So, poor people wore color too. Um, And if they couldn't afford dye or they wanted to go for the fashion for white which was very like a real white garment think about like picture a roman like how film has told you that romans roman in their toga what color are they white
2: red and purple red
1: purple or white with a purple stripe or red stripe Mm. they don't get it necessarily right either but anyway anyway, white was (laughs) white was really really popular and making a pure bright white was expensive and labor intensive and hard you would have to bleach the textile and um, that took a lot so there were ways to get wool to be very close to a bleached white just from fulling it so it's a type of combing and just preparing of the fibers to get that nice white color when we have textile remains today and they come to us and they look beige or yellowish this is just age it's just what happens over time you know two thousand years later it's not gonna look like brilliantly white
0: this is so cool and what a great point to end on because I have about a thousand more questions that I need to go and fulfill in my plebs is going to also be the that's the immediate image of tv show plebs is what comes to mind when I think of their own world Joe if you have not seen that it's great um but thank you so much Katie for coming and sharing so much knowledge I also just need to go back and watch Monty Python I think I think that's the lesson I need to take from this. I need to go back and watch Life of Brian properly.
1: If that's the takeaway that and everybody <laughs> walks away with, I'm I'm fine with that. But thank you so much for having me on and giving me a chance to talk about all this stuff because I love it a lot. More people should love it too.
2: One thing is a question we usually like to ask at the end is that is there anything you want to promote Like, do you want to mention any articles you've got coming out, any talks you're giving, any other platforms you do or things like that? So basically like it's a space for you to boost your profile at this point.
1: Um, I am working on my monograph, uh, which will be coming out if I can get it done (laughs) sometime soon, hopefully. Um, Entitled Costuming Christ, and that will be with uh the Library of New Testament Studies T T Clark. Mm-hmm.